Another Way to Play, episode 125. I am not the kind of guy who's going to go and go, yeah, I was at the team trials. It was kind of cool. No, I want to make a team. But how do, you make, how do I make a, an Olympic team? I, I am what I would have at the time considered, I would consider myself army fit. I could walk 100 miles with 50 pounds on my back, a rifle in my hand. I didn't consider myself sports fit. Hey guys, this is Devon Harris, Olympian, motivational speaker, and founder of the Keep On Pushing Foundation. And if you want to make the next chapter of your life better than the last, then you should be listening to Another Way to Play with my really good friend, Hans Struzinia. Welcome to Another Way to Play. I'm your host, Hans Struzina, Olympic athlete turned top producing Bay Area realtor. I believe that your success or failure is determined by your ability to compete and win when it comes to your mindset. Twice a week, I talk with other high performers to share the lessons and inspiration that allowed them to blow the roof off their success. So get ready to have some fun, be inspired, and most importantly, learn the skills you need to win in your own life. This is another way to play. I am your host, Hans Strazina, and if you're anything like me, you probably watched Disney Channel growing up. Well, think back to Friday or Saturday night when they would have a movie come on that would be just something you couldn't get in the stores or whatever, but it would be really exciting, like Johnny Tsunami or Brink. Those were a couple that I remember. But there was another one called Cool Runnings that would always come on. And I loved the story of the Jamaican bobsled team coming together and uh, going to the Olympics. Well, that's who our guest is today. It's Devin Harris. He was a member of that original Jamaican bobsled team and went on to two more Olympics after that, made quite a name for himself in the sport, and since then has done a lot of really amazing things. Most notably, started a foundation called the Keep On Pushing Foundation, which gives underserved youth in Jamaica, food, school supplies, that sort of thing, so they can basically be fed um, and be more successful in school, because he talks about this in our interview. Um, He saw a big opportunity to help serve kids from his community growing up in that way. We also get into his mindset around training for basically a sport he knew nothing about. It turns out at the time when he started in bobsled, he was in the military. He always had a dream of being a military officer, achieved that dream, and then pursued the Olympics, but wasn't ever sure he could do it in the sprinting way, but they opened up the bobsled opportunity, and away he went. So we get into that. We get into his personal story, his journey. And then a little bit about bobsledding specifically. You're also going to want to check out his book, uh, which we mentioned and have queued up down in the show notes so you can check that out there. And if you get some value out of this episode, please leave it a rating and review on iTunes or whatever player you listen on because it really helps me grow and get out there in front of a few more people. Thank you so much in advance uh, for doing that. And thanks to all of you who already have. Really appreciate the love and support. Without any further ado, let's get into it with Devin Harris. Devin, man, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so excited to have you on. Hey, Hans, it's uh, awesome to be able to hang out with you, man, even though you do the other kind of water sport. (laughs) Yeah, when I was on your show, we were joking how uh, your water's just a little colder than mine. Yeah, frozen. (laughs) I like my water frozen. What can I say? 
Yeah, yeah. I'm different Olympic Games, but um, you're obviously an Olympian motivational speaker and uh, founder of the Keep On Pushing Foundation. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Let's start there. What is the Keep On Pushing Foundation? Yeah, um, so, you know, I grew up in Kingston, uh, Jamaica. And those, uh, for those of your viewers, listeners who have, may have seen those ads, you know, come to Jamaica and feel all right, they weren't talking about my neighborhood at all. There's, they won't be feeling all right in my neighborhood. Uh, so uh, a number of years ago, I w- visited uh, Kingston. I live in New York now. And I went to my old elementary school, speaking to the principal there, asking him about some of the issues. What were the biggest challenges he had? And the biggest one was, a lot of kids were coming to school hungry. And we know the deal. If you're hungry, you can't learn. If you're not learning, then you can't get educated. And then you're really behind the eight ball in life. And I understood exactly what that meant because I grew up in, in that kind of environment. It's a very violent, impoverished neighborhood. And so you need all the help you can get. And so I started the Keep On Pushing Foundation you know, I guess we'll talk about bobsledding a little bit later on, but that's as creative as I could get. You know, bobsledders, that's what we do, we push. There's actually more to it in terms of the philosophy, which we'll get into later. But we started a Keep On Pushing Foundation, and we started, uh, you know, providing breakfast. We created a breakfast program at the school. We have a school supplies program going. And right now we're we're um, almost finished building what we call a sick bay. It's kind of like a nurse's station. So kids who aren't so well during the school day uh, can have a place to hang out, but also for the guidance counselor, uh, you know, to have a quiet, private place to speak to some of these kids. So the the goal is overall to provide practical solutions to some of the things that are preventing kids in disadvantaged communities from getting properly educated. It's, It's fascinating how you sort of broke down that problem of like, kids aren't really learning and probably producing good test scores and all that other stuff, but you, you took it down to the root of like, it's because they're hungry, they're not eating. And, you, and you've taken a, a complex problem and found a simple solution to it. Was, it. was it really like actually that simple or was there more to the story there? It really was that simple. Uh, and what, what's interesting is, you know, as you go back and, uh, you know, I, we don't keep, you know, data about, um, how many kids, um, you know, were coming to school late and all that stuff. But as the breakfast program started, you know, um, attendance improved, punctuality improved, behavior improved, test performance in class uh, improved as well, as, as the teachers tell me. And it's really cool, you know, to be at the school and I, and I go visit and you see them with the book bags and the books and so on. And, and there will be like a line of little boys, especially all of them, eager to show me the work that they're doing in their books. You know, the teacher like, go back to class, go back to class. So it's, uh, it's heartwarming. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you came back after, after some really cool experiences on some frozen water, as you like to call it, and, and started the Keep on Fishing Foundation. But you, as you alluded to it, few minutes ago, you started yourself as one of these kids who was in one of these rough neighborhoods. So why don't you take us back to where your story actually began? Yeah, so we go, well, that's a long journey back, boy, but uh, let's try. No, let's, <laughs> let's, <laughs> no, see actually, so let's see where I, this takes us. You know, the, I am told that I actually went to live with my grandmother in rural Jamaica 
uh, far from the hood. Uh, when I was seven months old, and I think I li lived with her until I was five, and that's really where my journey began because my grandmother, I remember her uh, just being this amazing storyteller and telling me, well, the stories that, that, that I remember most hands are the ones she told me about soldiers and these incredible things they could do, you know, not get hurt. And, uh, you know, I didn't know if I could do it, but I wanted to do it. And that's the thing that inspired me to want to become a soldier. But more than that, way more important than that was that those stories inspired me to want to do things that other people thought were impossible or just incredibly difficult. So that the, you know, that kind of mindset started there. Hey, if it's difficult, go do it. You know, you might fail, but hey, who knows? And so I, I moved back to Kingston uh, and you know, grew up in Olympic Gardens, my old neighborhood is called. And it was rough, it was violent, but I enjoyed my time at that elementary school that we're just talking about. You know, that's, uh, you know I, I did well in school, um, uh, but I loved to play, uh, perhaps way too much. And that's where I discovered sports. And, you know, my, my first love was soccer. And then I um, eventually got to high school, started running track. When I was 15, and it was a year before the Moscow Olympics and ABC Wild World of Sports had a series called Road to Moscow. They featured athletes from all around the world, different disciplines and so on, as you know. And the thing that, because when we think of Olympic athletes, we think of these superhuman people. And what I saw in, in, in that series was how average and ordinary they were. They're just like you and I, man, but they had extraordinary dreams and, and an extraordinary desire to go pursue those dreams. Kind of like the stories that my grandmother was telling me about soldiers and how they, they seem superhuman, right? And you realize, oh, yeah, you know, you could just go get it. And so that's how, you know, one thing led to another. And here we are talking uh, as two Olympians. So you, so you saw this series on TV, and that's really what inspired you to pursue sports and try and get to the Olympics. Was that it? No, so I was pursuing sports. I was playing, you know, running, playing uh, soccer and running track. But yeah, the the series um, made me realize that it's not that it was easy to get to the Olympics, but that you know, an ordinary guy like me, if I dared to dream could actually make it to the Olympics. I was aware of the Olympics um, prior to 1979 because we had a, a guy, Donald Quarry, who, I, again, anybody who knows about sprinting, he, he defied the odds. He was a really short guy who went off to uh, Montreal and won the 200 meters uh, in 1976, you know? And so it was a big deal. But 79 and that series kind of made me realize I could actually be one of them. Isn't it crazy how sometimes the, you, you have those moments when you just see something a little different or there's some clip or in your case, a, a series that you watch that just kind of pushed you into this next direction, some inspiration. And it's, it's so cool how that you think back because I have those for myself with rowing that I could tell everyone about that just I could replay it exactly where I was sitting when I had that realization like, oh, that's something I could do potentially like that's. I love that those kind of stories. That's so crazy that we all seem to have those. Yeah, because you know, I always say that success principles are universal. But just think about, like all of us, regardless of what it is that we do or dream of doing, have seen somebody doing something and go, "Wow, 
you know, I could do that. Or, you know, if she can do it, I can do it. There are some variation of that, man. It's, it's that thing that connects all of us as human beings, I think. Wow. I, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. And I, and I love that you broke it down that way. So you saw this, you, you started to kind of change your mindset a little bit and started to think, oh, maybe, maybe if I set myself up and work hard, I could, I could see myself getting here. So you were training in track, but then, then you went into the winter side of the sporting world. So how did that transition happen? I have no idea what happened. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> you showed up a few two year, years early or late. One of the two, I'm not sure. Yeah. So, uh, so 79. So my, I set my sights on the 1984 Olympic games in uh, LA thinking I'm going to be the great, the next great Jamaican middle distance runner. That's the thing, you know. Uh, people in Jamaica are sprinting way too fast for me, and I was um, impatient. I wanted to win like yesterday, and I was finishing third and fourth, and it wasn't enough. Um, needless to say, I didn't come anywhere near qualifying for those Olympic Games in in LA. The other thing that was important in my life was uh, being in the army. Like you know, my grandmother inspired that. And so I wanted to be an army officer. Again, it's a little bit more difficult, right? So that's um, what I reached for. So right after high school, I enlisted in the army. And uh, so I go off to, to Sandhurst, the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst is a British equivalent of West Point. I completed um, my army training. And while I was there, I actually jumped from a plane. No, it wasn't on the ground. It was 2,500 feet in the air. And I broke my ankle. On my second jump, so I haven't done it again. Not my lesson. <laughs> second try, second time, and I'm I'm done with that silly. Oh, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, what's so funny was that it wasn't even required, and I begged and begged and begged, and they relented. Like, okay, fine, and I go broke my ankle. But anyway, so I come back. I'm back in Jamaica. I'm, I'm 21 years old, and I remember this so clearly. I was walking down to the officers' mess. And I'm having this really intense conversation with myself. I'm like, so you've accomplished your big dream. You're an army officer. Is this it? What are you going to do with the rest of your life, man? I'm like, oh, yeah, the Olympics. They were coming up in 1988 because this was the summer of 1987 or, or just before. Um, 88 in Seoul, Korea. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I could get fit enough to qualify. So I'd get up every morning. I'd go run my five miles. That's all I knew. And so you know, I'm thinking maybe I could get fit enough. There are some mornings, Hans, I would leave. I would deliberately leave for my run late, knowing that I can't report for duty late, which meant that I had to run harder. So run about that time. Burn, burn the ships and knock the bridge down so you just commit. Huh? Yeah, dude, because, you know... <laughs> Yeah, you know, turn up late for duty is just not acceptable at all. So yeah, I would, that's that's worse than a painful run. It sounds yes, like yeah, exactly. You see, um, two Americans run about that time. They lived in Jamaica, and they had if pe people have seen the movie Cool Runnings will remember Sanka racing this wooden cart down a winding mountain road. We actually do do that in Jamaica. It's, I've never done it myself, but these two guys saw it. Thought it looked like bobsledding, you know, two crazy guys going on the side of a mountain in a cart, and then discovered that a big part of a bobsled race is the start, and we have lots of sprinters in Jamaica. But the guys on the summer team didn't want to do it, 
So they came to the army looking for athletes. I, I mentioned that my, you know, I had this broken ankle. So not many people in the army knew that one, I was an athlete or that I was, you know, quote unquote, that fit. So I go run across country race and I finished 14 from 40. I was just kind of building myself back up. And they're like, oh my God, he's fit. So, yeah. So my colonel told me to go to the team trials, really. Um, because of a, a, a philosophy in the army that says officers must always participate, right? So it's kind of a kind of a leadership philosophy, you know. The, you, the leaders must be involved, and and since the colonel had a bunch of enlisted men going to the team trials, he figured he sent his young fit officer as well. Well, I am not the kind of guy who's going to go and go. Yeah, I was at the team trials. It was kind of cool. No, I want to make the team. But how do you make? How do I make an Olympic team? I, I um, what I would have at the time considered, I would consider myself army fit. I could walk a hundred miles with fifty pounds on my back, a rifle in my hand. I didn't consider myself sports fit. But the 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 the, the, the train is leaving the station, man. The trials are in a couple of weeks. And come, you know, there's, there's, there wasn't enough time to get physically fitter than what I was. So I knew, I knew I was going to go and give like everything I had. And most of it had to come down to the mental piece. So I, I went to the team trials and, and I just tried my darnest and they selected me. Wow. Do you think it was because of the mental side of it or did you also... What like you said earlier, you weren't in your peak physical condition, but so maybe someone performed better than you on the day, or maybe not. But what impact do you think your mental state had on their selecting you? Hmm, it's a really good question. I never thought about it that way. I, I definitely was determined as hell. I think I I did well enough physically. I so in my head there were maybe twenty of us at the trials itself. You know, forty people turned up that first day and they saw crashes these horrific crashes and like half of the group didn't turn up. So I'm there and, you know, most of it is explosive speed, 30, 60, 100 meters. And I'm struggling, man, to, to kind of rank in the top four. I'm like, if they're on select four, where can I be? So the only run, the only test that day that was comfortable for me was that 300 meter run that we did because that's what I did for speed work. And then they had a, what they call a push test. It's a, a, a makeshift sled on wheels, and then you push it. And uh, although I knew nothing about bobsled, I'm like, this is the most important test. And I ended up with the two fastest pushes. I pushed faster than the fastest sprinter that was there that day. And so that gave me a little bit of confidence that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I was sneaking there somewhere. But I just think it was a... Obviously, I had some physical abilities. Is that coupled with just like tremendous determination that I don't know how I'm going to make this team, man, but I'm making it. I love that. So, yeah, clearly that you were no slouch physically. So, but you also had this mental piece that was, I mean, you showed up when you needed to show up and performed on the things that you knew that were like, hey, this sled push, this is Bob. So this looks like Bob sledding. Like, let's, I need to compete and win on this one. And, uh, and set yourself to task and, and got it done, which is, I mean, there's a lot of lessons in there for sure. Like, you know, a mindset alone is not going to get you on the Olympic team. However, 
you know, that coupled with your fitness and then like crazy, like you're show, you're starting your runs late to like make yourself go faster for that incentive. Like that's the mindset stuff that's going in, but you're still putting in the work to, to be fit and be good. Yeah, you have to. Um, one of the things that I did that, that, that I don't talk about a lot, actually, and it, it, it speaks to the mindset piece. So I knew we were going to run 30 and 60, uh, you know, and 100 meters. Dude, I've never run a, a 30 meter or a 60 meter. I'm a middle distance runner. And so I remember going down to the running track on the armor base and I ran 30 meters just to see how it feel and ran 60 meters to see how it would feel. And, and, and I'm like, okay, so that's kind of what it feels like knowing in my head that come selection day, I'm, the, the effort is going to be at 150%, you know? So I'm like, okay, fine. I, I just, that's really part of the mind game because it, it's such an important piece of the success puzzle. Yeah. Uh, so you, you prepped and you practiced it a little bit, at least just to get some physical reps and wrap your head around you know, what, how fast my legs are going to move, the lactic acid, how my lungs are going to feel, all that sort of stuff. And, and then you went in, now it's like, okay, now when I'm pushing, I, I've been there before. I can, I can uh, relate. I know what to feel. I know what to expect here. That's, that's so cool. Yeah, that, that's, um, you know, and it, it, it's the kind of thing that applies to everything else. Not just trying to make a bobsled team, right? It's, you know, trying to close a deal. You... I mean, all of us as Olympic athletes, and this is something that I practiced before, visualization. I didn't know it was called visualization until I started bobsledding. Um, but yeah, you know, you have to, you know, wrap your, I was about to say your head, your mind around that which you're trying to accomplish and try and get your body to feel as it would feel if you're doing this thing and then knowing that when you go into the arena, the, the, the lake or the bobsled track or this conference room that, you know, it's game time and you know, that's when you're going to put all the energy in. Yeah, absolutely. So you made that team, you, you had some really great performances on the day and you teed yourself up to do it. Well, that was, was that in fact, Jamaica's first, bobsled experience in the Olympics that you, that team that you made, like the movie suggests? Yeah, that was, um, you know, so, but the, I mean, the crazy thing about it is that, so we were on a bobsled team and we didn't even know what a bobsled was. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. So, so we went down a bobsled track for the first time in October, 87 Calgary. I think we spent about six weeks in, in Calgary, we went to Innsbruck, Austria, um, we did one race against some of the B teams at the time. And then we went home for Christmas, went back to Lake Placid, New York in January 88, spent the month there, and then we went to the Olympic Games. So that really was the, you know, the sum total of our bobsled experience um, heading into Calgary. Wow. It really, compared to your competition, who have probably been doing bobsled since... Uh, many of them since they were able to walk almost, I'm sure. You guys literally had a handful of, of uh, attempts down the track in your life, not a life period, not only just being together as a team, and then you, you go and you uh, go to compete at the Olympic Games. That's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you think, think, I mean, as an Olympian, you can appreciate how crazy it is. Imagine that you turn up at the Olympic Games 
and your first major competition ever was the Olympic Games. Um, in fact, um, even crazier, the first time we ever raced a four-man bobsled was at the Olympic Games. Not even, not, not even before. Yeah, first time. It was, yeah, the, a, a little bit crazy. From your mindset perspective, was there, in, in your group, your, your four-man team, was the moment, like, so big and everyone got so nervous because you had less, less experience? Or did you feel like, hey, we've never done this before. Let's just see what happens. Like, which, which one were you guys feeling? So three things uh, in my head, anyway, were taking place when I was at the Olympics. One was I was there to compete and be at my best. I was just, just give it everything I could. The second one was that I was learning still. Um, you know, so whenever I wasn't getting ready to go on the track, I was watching, um, you know, all the teams, the good ones and the bad ones. My friend from Australia actually has two pictures that I've seen on Facebook. You know, one of me standing behind the star watching the Swiss team and the other watching the Australians, right? Just, I don't know, just trying to figure out if there's something I can pick up, right? You don't know what you don't know. And then the other part was just, I would say, being a little bit in awe. Like the, the Olympic Games was the first time we are seeing all the major players in the sport. It's kind of like, you know, going to the NBA finals and go, oh, oh, so that's LeBron James, you know, it's just never seen anything. So I was doing all three at the same time, um, just, but just also recognizing, man, you know what, when, it, when it's time for us to be on the ice, whatever I was able to learn just watching, um, I'm going to try and if I can pick up anything, I'll apply it, but then we're going. It's game time. And when you think back to that, that first Olympics, family and friends, like your, your culture in Jamaica was all sprinting, right? Everyone wanted to be on the, on the track team. Was everyone kind of supporting you and behind you? Or was everyone like, these guys are crazy. What are they doing? We don't do bobsled in Jamaica. Like what, Dude, what was it like back home? They don't even know what it is. They don't, they don't, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tell them, so my parents, I, I just remember this. My, my parents lived in Jersey and I remember um, being up in Lake Placid and the you know, press started to follow us and that kind of stuff. And I went to visit and back in the old days where you're not downloading a YouTube video, you're, you're sticking in the VHS uh, tape and the VCR. And my, my parents watched it and my dad kind of sat there in silence. And then he goes, but Deb, this thing is really dangerous. I'm like, yeah, that's why we wear a helmet, you know? Um, <laughs> they didn't have a... <laughs> <laughs> they had no, they had no clue. They had, you know, Jamaica was, um, I, I, I would say that most of Jamaica kind of caught up with the idea of what bobsledding was perhaps during the Olympic games itself. Got it. So, so I have a sports question and it has to do with how you position yourself in the bobsled. Cause in rowing, you have eight different seats, typically if you're rowing an eight and, and each seat has sort of not a specialty cause everyone has to row the same, but there's certain types of people or body types or whatever that fit better in certain seats. Typically, is that the same thing in bobsled, the guy who's steering versus the guys that are pushing, or is there anything that's special about the different positions? Well, the, the, the driver is, that's a specialized position, right? You know, you, you, you're not going to get up today and go, Hey, I think I want to drive. That's, that's, <laughs> and you're going to be driving and going down by yourself. 
right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not getting in that sled. <laughs> no, right. so the driver is definitely a specialized position. And so on a foreman, it kind of comes down to, and I've seen teams, you know, uh, experiment with all kinds of different configurations, so to speak. But it kind of comes down to the speed of the other three guys. So the driver, you know, runs off and he gets in, you know, fairly early. Um, and then everybody is kind of running in their own little world, just going as fast as they can. And then when the sled gets to the, to the speed where you're going as fast as the sled is sliding, it means you're not pushing, so it's time to get on. So after the driver, I would say the slowest guy gets in. So on that sled, I was the number two guy, so that would be me. I get in right behind the driver, then the third guy, and then the fourth guy who was usually the, the fastest on the back. So, interesting. In bobsled, I mean, the, the, at least half of the race is, is the start, right? And then the other half is how you steer and move through the course. And so really that the three guys in the back account for half and then the drivers, maybe the other half. Is that true? Or are you in the sled like helping lean and, you know, move, maneuver through the course in any way? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, maybe half of the, the, the races in the start and then uh, maybe 30% of it is driving because you still have to account for the equipment, the sled itself. You know, it's, there's a difference between uh a Mercedes Benz, and no disrespect, a Toyota Corolla, you know? Sure, sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then there's the ice conditions and the weather conditions that also, uh, you know, play a role. So, so once you get in, though, it looks, when you're watching, it looks as if we're leaning, the guys in the back, but you're not. You're, you're trying to sit squarely in the sled, but when the sled gets up on the corner, the entire thing leans. Sure. Uh, so it looks like you're leaning, right? So you're just trying to sit there steady and and be as aerodynamic as possible, while the, while the driver does his thing. And what's the top speed that that this these sleds get going down the course? Yeah, you know, on the tracks that are around now, eight to uh, four miles, we'll get up to about eight to five. On that old track in Lake Placid, you were getting maybe you could get ninety on it. Yeah, it's um. You're going from zero to nine to mine, no engine. Yeah. If you, I've been on a speedboat one time and we, we cracked a hundred and that was with a huge motor in the back. And, but the, but I had to imagine it was similar because the wind's going past your face and everything. And like, you're going 90 in a, in a frozen sled down the hill. It's like, that's gotta be, it feels like 150 miles an hour or something. It's it's, it's (laughs) so much faster, but it's, Really, because you're so much closer, to the, you're so much closer to the ground, right? If you imagine, like when you're in a car going at a hundred, it it's, feels way faster than when you're in an airplane going at 250 miles an hour, because you're so much further, so much higher from the ground. So yeah, it absolutely feels uh, crazy. It's a matter of perspective. It sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, I mean, obviously, there's some physics. I'm, I'm trying to go back to my high school physics class and all the experts out there. I think it's called parallax. Can't remember now, but, you know, don't quote me on that. You know, probably fail that exam. You're, uh, 
you're you're a better man than me for even trying on that word. I, I don't know. I couldn't. I wouldn't have pulled that on out of anywhere. So that that was. I love hearing about other sports that I don't. I don't know much about. But so you 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 obviously got into this sport and you went to the Olympics three times for for bobsled. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So um, again, you go back to you know. I blame my grandmother for the way I think because she just. So I got in, I, I'm getting into bobsledding and you, so you do these tests at the trials and they, and they score you. And if you wanted to be a brake man, the brake man had to score more than the drivers. So I wanted to be a brake man because in my head, that's the most important role. It makes sense, right? You have to score more. And then I, I got into the sport. And, and so you think that, you know, me trying, I'm not, in my head, I'm not all that fit. I would be going for the easier role, but no, I have to go for the harder one. And then I got on the sport. I realized that the brake man is uh, nobody. The driver is a man that's a specialized position, right? I'm like, oh, can I be a driver? Um, so I wanted to be a driver, but I, I also knew that first year I was way too scared. Um, I needed some time um, to acclimatize, to, to become a driver. So after Calgary, I did become a driver, and I ended up driving the two-man in both the 92 and the 98 Olympics. Wow. And, and tell me real quick, like, what did it take for you to sort of that fear component? Because I can imagine, like, 80 miles an hour, you're hauling down this course. Yeah, there's, there's definitely some life and limb you're, you're risking to some degree there. Like, what, what was that transformation like for you to, to be a, a brake man all the way to a driver? Well, I'll I, I tell you about my first time going down the track, um, October 87 in Calgary, starting at the halfway point, because that's kind of how you start in the sport. And dude, I was just scared to death. And I remember saying to myself, you know, if I die, I die, but I'm going. I just... <laughs> <laughs> oh my I just, gosh. Yeah, I just, I just resigned myself. Like, I'm going, man. There's no way I'm coming to Calgary and not go down the track. And so, you know, and, and that just like, okay, fine. I'm, I'm at peace with it if I die. And the fear never, ever goes away. You just manage it, you know. So even all my time as a brave man, you know, the, the truth is that on all of us, I think, as athletes, when you get up to the start line, you're nervous. I'm always a nervous. Like even when I ran track and I knew I was going to win, I was nervous. But once it's time to go, it's like it's work time. There's no nervousness. The thing I love most about driving or more about driving compared to a brake man is that you have control. You know, you, yeah, so you are nervous as hell. But once you're on the start line and you set and you start pushing, it's just like, it's a sheer aggression. And once you get in the sled as a driver, it's just total concentration. And you know you have control of the sled and you're trying to, you're not trying to, manhandle the sled you're trying to guide it that's a that's a key right there to just kind of resist the urge the natural urge that we have to go oh my god oh let me pull and you know i just like no nice and easy wait wait you know it's a <laughs> it's a real exercise in patience if you can imagine a, a driver exercising patience going at 80 miles an hour so close to the ground yeah you, that nervousness, that mindset, and and sort of the what you're just describing as something that I can totally relate to is you know the the butterflies just to start at the start line. 
I've all, I've always had that every single race that I've won and lost. I've always felt that way. And I always thought, and maybe you can agree with this, that there's kind of two ways to look at that. One is it's natural and it's like, means your body's ready to go. And then the second one is I always thought like, you know, how butterflies feel like they're moving in all random directions. I was always trying to get them to go in one direction as opposed to stop them. Right. Cause everyone wants to stop when it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think the, when you get, when you become nervous, this be, part of the reason because you're, you care, you want to do well. Um, and so the butterflies kind of build up and, you know, I, I remember, and I don't know why, but uh, Nagano, I just wanted to do so, I wanted to do well so badly. And as we were warming up, I was just, I was feeling the pressure of the moment. And, you know, I've felt that in some ways before. And you have a choice in that split second to, to wilt or to stand strong. Right? In, the, in that split second, you can, you know, mentally go, you know what? I'm going to live up to the moment. I'm going to stand up to it. I'm going to steer it down and I'm going to take charge. Or you can go, oh my God, I can't do it. And I, and I think, uh, you know, in life, we, we're all faced with those moments and we have to, in that split second, make a choice. Well, Devin, that was awesome. And with that, I, I want to, uh, I could keep talking to you about sports and life and all that stuff all day, but I want to respect the rest of your time and, and uh, move us into the last section of the show called the Focus Five. Uh, same questions I ask every guest on every show. Are you ready? Oh man, I hope I can pass. Mm, let's go. <laughs> I know you're the, you're competitive. You're gonna get these. It's all I, I have faith in you. I hope I hope that has nothing to do with like physics and me trying to figure out if something there's something called parallax, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, you'd school me on that stuff. I promise you. First question is: What book have you gifted most often? Oh, uh, shameless plug to say mine. Yeah, bring it. <laughs> Keep on pushing. Hot Lessons from Cool Runnings by Devon Harris is the one I've gifted most often. Uh, and then we'll link to that down in the show notes if you guys want to check that one out. So easy to find down in the show notes. Uh, second question is, uh, if you could get an hour of somebody's time, past or present, live or dead, and ask as many questions as you wanted, who would that person be and why? You know, um, I, I, Nelson Mandela comes to mind. I, I talk about him often. Um, if you know his story, spent 28 years in prison and came out and was just the epitome of forgiveness. I need some of that because it's, it's not my natural nature at all to be as forgiving. And I, you see how powerfully that played out in his life. And I... I, I know it more than just at an intellectual level, how important that is, but I have not grown, quite frankly, to that level yet. Yeah, I just watched, rewatched rather Invictus recently, and I was, I was struck by the same thing, the portrayal of him in that way, the forgiveness is, that's, that's a great answer, man. I appreciate that. What is one thing that you believe most people would disagree with you on? Well, huh. I can't think of what that is. You know, I, I don't believe, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe in woo-woos. Nothing controversial relative to uh, keep on pushing or anything like that? No. Um, so let me think socially. No, I, you know, I just, I like when it 
come on to social issues, I, I just so believe in fairness and it's kind of like the, the, the principles and the lessons that we bring from sports. Like I'm not, I'm not naive, but I just like in an ideal world, you know, everybody would just show up as who they are and give up their best and be respected for that. You know, so I, I, I am, I am frustrated and I'm angry at, at injustice, you know, but I think, I guess that the 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 where where the disagreement would happen with some people is what is there in their def- definition of what injustice is, I suppose. That's well said. I appreciate you sharing that. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. What? How do you like to start your day? Uh, I wake up. I usually get up. I like open my eyes around six. I'm uh, kind of lazy these days. You know, usually it's earlier. Oh come on. But, um, <laughs> And I, you know, go to the bathroom and then I wander into the kitchen and like a true Englishman, I have my cup of tea. <laughs> I have tea in the morning um, and then I kind of come down to my office and I, I, you know, medit- do a little meditation and, you know, read something. Right now I'm rereading um, Seven Habits of, a high, of Highly Effective People. And then I just kind of get into the day, you know, if it's, if it's like sports, and if my team won the night before, then I'll watch some of the highlights. If my team lost, I don't watch it. I'm like, screw it. I don't want to see that. <laughs> Very good. Well, Devin, this has been awesome. And we're, uh, we didn't talk about your podcast, uh, but you do have one. Um, where can we learn more about the podcast, your book, you online? Yeah, man. Um, DevonHarris.com is my website. You know, at Keep On Pushing 88 is where you find me. And, Instagram and Twitter and YouTube for my podcast, Keep On Pushing TV. You go to YouTube, Keep On Pushing Always, and you'll find me. We're going to link up to all of that down in the show notes. Devin's got a ton of great content interviewing a lot of other Olympians, plus his book and just some good stuff out there, man. So Devin, uh, really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you for bringing some value to the audience and sharing your story. We're really grateful and uh, glad to know you. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you for the amazing work you're doing as well. And, you know, you have a wonderful story as well. And so I encourage your audience when they do uh, pop over to my podcast. It hasn't been posted yet, but will be soon. You'll be able to see hands in action, man. So yeah. Yeah. You were kind (laughs) enough to have me on your show. So I'm I'm returning the favor. Well, Devin, thanks again, man. I appreciate it. And uh, any, any final thoughts for us before we log it off for today? Um, I, if I could leave, uh, leave you with a quote from, oh, um, forgot now, but, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, whatever you have inside, whatever is behind you or in front of you is totally and completely insignificant to whatever it is that's inside of you. So with that, I encourage you to keep on pushing. That is a wrap for today. If you want to check out what Devin's got going on, the show notes is a place to do it. You can get a copy of his book, check out his uh, podcast, which is Keep On Pushing TV on YouTube, all his social media handles. It's all down there. He was kind enough to have me on his show, so you might catch my episode if we're uh, listening to this at the same time that it's out. Otherwise, go check it out later. Uh, and if you want to connect with me, got my social handle, Instagram at Chief Snaw down below. 
Uh, so go check it out there. And thank you in advance for those of you who've left a rating and review. And if you still haven't done it or you're thinking about it, but you're getting some value, I would really appreciate it because it helps me continue to grow the show. So without any further ado, let's get out of here. This is Hans Strazina, host of Another Way to Play. And remember to make every chapter better than the last.